Uh, If you're visiting or perhaps you just need a reminder, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis called The Beginning of Everything, because that's what we believe uh, the book of Genesis is, is an account, uh, an accurate, reliable account of of the beginning of all things, of the purpose of all things, of what God's intention um, was and is for us, for his children. And so we're in the middle of studying it, and our, our lead pastor Paul's away this week, and so it's my opportunity to explore with you Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Uh, but it's difficult to just jump into two verses without looking at the passage immediately preceding it and the verses immediately following it. And so if you'll allow me, <clears throat> I'll read from Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and I will read through till, up until including verse 10, which is our verse this morning. So Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found eyes found favor, pardon me, in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This concludes our reading of the word of the Lord for our passage this morning. You see, these verses in Genesis chapter 6 are in stark contrast to just a few pages earlier on which, where which God in, on day six of creation behold all that he had made or beheld. And on the sixth day, he says, it's very good. Yeah, at that point, he had creation was completed. He looked upon it all, including mankind. And he says, behold, it is very good. Genesis 5 accounts for us that God made man in his likeness. He blessed them and he named them man. And in doing so, he gave us a purpose. He gave us a function. He gave us a role, which was to rule over creation, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to be his stewards, to be his caretakers over planet earth and over the rest of creation. But here we are just a page or two later. You follow the family tree of God's, God's lineage down about 12 names. And in verse six, chapter, six, chapter 6, verse 6, it says all of a sudden that the Lord regretted what he had made. He was grieved. He regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. You see, this is the picture of a world gone horribly wrong. One writer says of the creation that's just unraveled up until this point, says that in time it became increasingly clear that humanity was unwilling and unable to live out the responsibilities of stewardship, was unable to live out the responsibilities of of exactly what God had called mankind to do. Humans again violated their proper place within God's order by overstepping the limits that he had placed on them. You see, we weren't doing the things we should have been doing, and we were doing the very things that God had prohibited us from doing. We had completely ignored, and not only ignored, but completely corrupted God's plan for earth, for us. And it says that every intention of the heart was only ever evil. The world was purely evil. And how we got here from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, all of a sudden to Genesis 5, the short answer of how we got here is sin. Sin brought us to where we are now, to the point where mankind apparently had no capacity to to speak well or to speak good, to do good, to desire good. We only, mankind's, the intentions of his heart was only ever 
evil, doing evil, thinking evil, conspiring evil, using and abusing creation for evil ends, towards perpetuating evil. It was corrupt. Relationships, corrupt. Violence pervaded everywhere. If you were here last week, uh, and if not, you can go back and, uh, and catch that. Paul spoke briefly on the Nephilim. This was, this was, this was a, a group who had made a name for themselves for their violence and their wickedness, only ever evil. And you might go, well, they didn't know any better. Just, this is just what happens. And well, that's partly true. This is exactly what happens when sin has the ability to manifest itself and it just perpetuates and gets farther and farther into wickedness. But they did know better. And I know that because Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, of all mankind, <clears throat> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to say that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's placed his fingerprints. He's placed uh, his divine attributes. He's placed his essence on the heart of man and has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You see, God has left his fingerprints on all over creation and all over us, his divine fingerprints. And so we are without excuse. It doesn't mean that through just looking at a tree, you can find salvation in Jesus Christ, but you're without, we're without excuse because God has left his traces and his fingerprints everywhere. And so ungodliness and wickedness such that we see in Genesis chapter five and six is one of suppressing the truth of relishing in darkness, of rejoicing and frolicking in darkness, rejecting the truth and hating the light. But we need to know that this doesn't come as a threat to God. <clears throat> it says it grieved God, he was saddened that he had made man and he needed to, it was time to, to do something about it, but God wasn't threatened. God wasn't about to be overthrown. There's no amount of wicked or evil that could have continued or could have, could have uh, pervaded that would have possibly ever taken God off the throne. But he preserves a remnant. This is what God does. He identifies a people right from the beginning. He identifies people and he preserves them. And throughout history, you can read about this in the Old Testament and in through the New Testament, God preserves and protects his people, his children. And sometimes we have what's called a remnant. <clears throat> I've never had gangrene and I hope you've not had it either. But gangrene is a flesh eating, killing disease that starts in maybe a finger or a toe that, that begins to spread. And it begins to basically kill, kill the, the tissue and it begins to spread. And if it's left untreated, it'll come up the whole leg or come up the whole arm. And so the solution for that sometimes is amputation. For the sake of the rest of the body, it's necessary to amputate the leg or amputate the foot or the arm, lest it spreads. And so here, God, in preserving a remnant, does a sort of divine kind of amputation in which he says, enough, and leaves only a stump of what was left. So here we have, we're introduced to a man named Noah. <clears throat> and in Genesis chapter six, we're told a little bit about Noah. We're told that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One, one writer I read this past week says that, refers to Noah as the solitary saint. And so apparently among all of creation and, and best estimates suggest there would have been millions of people. It wasn't a couple hundred. It was a very populated earth at this time. There would have been likely millions of people. Noah stood alone as one who was righteous in the midst of a corrupt and wicked world. And this wasn't true of anybody else at that time. Noah lived a life that was consistent with God's will 
And Noah walked in close personal fellowship and friendship with God in a time when everyone else had completely turned away and done the exact opposite. Noah knew God personally. So when I come to this text, I want to know, well, how did Noah walk with God? That's all all we know is that Noah walked with God. Well, what does it mean? And through some some brief study, you can discover, I think, at least five things off just, just briefly, five things that Noah would have known in his walk, five, five ways in which God, uh, Noah walked with God. There was a simplicity to Noah's faith. There was a simplicity to Noah's life. We know what we know about Noah, of course, through Genesis 5 and 6 and in the, the flood account, which, which we'll get into in the coming weeks. We know that, but we also can have a New Testament perspective on the person of Noah in Hebrews chapter 11. And looking at these verses, I can come up with five things briefly um, uh, that, that speak of what Noah did know, what his walk looked like. I want to share them with you. Noah would have had a theocentric worldview, and, and, and that's a fancy way of saying that Noah had a God-centered worldview. He would have had a sense of morality, of, of the fact that there's one God who created and who is sovereign over all things. He would have had a salvation and a sin framework. His contemporaries, if you, if you read through the lineages, uh, through the lineage which just immediately precedes this text, we know that Enosh would have been around, one of his forefathers, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech. And through these forefathers, through this brief family history, we know that there was men of righteousness at this time. Enoch, in fact, preached of God's coming judgment. You can read about that in the book of Titus. Methuselah, his very name means when he is gone, it will come. There was some sense, even through, through the name of Methuselah, that would have been ringing through Noah's ears that there's a judgment coming. Enoch preached of it. Methuselah's name stood for it. There would have been some anticipation of some coming salvation. It says this of Lamech, who's Noah's father. Lamech called his name Noah at the time of his birth, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there was some framework of, of sin and of consequence for sin and of a fallen world. And from Noah, there would come, and of course we know what happens, through Noah there was salvation. Noah's family line was preserved. And then we end up with, with, of course, our Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ. From this one, there does come relief. Thirdly, Noah had the law of God. In the same way, Romans chapter one tells us that the law of God is written on the hearts of the unrighteous and they're without excuse so too it would have been on the heart of Noah because it says that ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, God has left his mark, left his fingerprint, particularly in men and women who, in whom he's made in their image. Thirdly, Noah was a recipient of God's grace. It tells us that um, Noah found favor with God. This favor was, was a grace of God that was shown towards Noah and this is necessary for all of us to even come to saving faith is that God has to, God has to extend his grace towards us to be even able to walk with him, to come to him, to comprehend the gospel because we are so lost in our sin that we need God's grace to pull us out of that. So Noah received the grace of God. Fourthly, Noah sought God. Turning to Hebrews chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews 11, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please him For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Noah received a blessing from God, namely that he was saved from the destruction of the earth and the global flood. That was his blessing. His family received a blessing. They were preserved. They were protected in the judgment. 
And lastly, Noah would have had faith. It says in Hebrews 11, one verse later in verse seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning yet things, pardon me, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Things that had not happened yet, Noah had been forewarned. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. So there was, there was faith. Noah had faith in God. Suffice it to say, in these five brief, brief points I've just shared with you, suffice it to say, Noah's faith was simple. It was a simple faith that he had, that he walked. His walk with God was simple. But nevertheless, he walked with God. One of the songs we just sang, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, it's a simple song. Behold him. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Walking with God is simple. And by that, I don't mean walking with God is easy. There's a difference. And we'll consider that this morning. But walking with God is simple. If you've ever done any kind of training, maybe it's for a race or a marathon, a a physical kind of training, or you've trained yourself to a certain discipline to wake up at a certain time, you'll know that usually it's pretty simple. (laughs) If it's for for fitness, you know, you need to eat right and you need to exercise or you need to train. You need to strengthen yourself. It's not any harder than that. It's not any more complicated than that. But it certainly is not easy, is it? Because there are so many things there to throw us off track. It's easier to grab the cupcake than it is the carrot. (laughs) And I know that to be true. (laughs) It's far easier to do the thing that we shouldn't do. It's easier to do the thing that we ought to avoid. And in addition to that, there are so many things to throw us off course. So while it is simple, it is not easy. But Psalm 23, I mentioned a few moments ago, we'll be studying Psalm 23. What I wanna do is use Psalm 23 as a bit of a lens to which through which we will look at our text this morning, which is in Genesis 6. So I want to lay out uh, Psalm 23 as a bit of a lens, and I want to spend the rest of our time looking through that lens of Psalm 23 and considering our passage this morning. And so I'll read Psalm 23, and then I need you to bear with me because I have eight points. (laughs) More often than not, I'm a two-point preacher, occasionally three, but today I'm going for eight. And I promise you they'll be brief, but I think they're necessary for us to consider as we look at Psalm 23 and consider Noah through that lens. I would like to read Psalm 23, invite you to just follow along in your Bible. The words will also be on the screen behind me. I invite you to read along and reflect. Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm. If, you, if you've not read them, if you don't have these verses committed to, to memory or if they're not familiar to you, uh, Psalm 23 is written by a guy called David. And David employs the use so beautifully of two, two powerful metaphors. He uses the image of a sheep to his shepherd and he uses the metaphor of a, of a guest in the host of God. So he uses two metaphors that we're familiar with. I love this about uh, the biblical literature is that it's simple. <laughs> the metaphors are easy to grab. It's not obscure. It's not complicated. It is simple to understand. And, this, and the same is true, of course, of Hebrew poetry, which is what Psalm 23 is. So allow me to read Psalm 23 in its entirety, and we'll dive into our eight points this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so in rather quick fashion, I'm gonna go through eight things that I think is true of the simple life. If you're taking notes, uh, you'll see in the sermon notes provided to you, those will be the bullets under which uh, we'll, we'll kind of hang our thoughts on. Looking at Genesis chapter six, verses nine and 10, through the lens of the passage I've just read in Psalm 23. The simple life satisfies in God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's nothing more I need than that which the shepherd gives me. Everything the sheep needs, I'm not a sheep, but I know a little bit about sheep. Everything that sheep need, they find with their shepherd. They don't have secret needs that the shepherd doesn't know about. The shepherd will meet all of them. They need not look anywhere else outside the loving, tender care of the shepherd. Everything they need is found there. Everything outside of that, well, it's, it's anyone's guess. There's danger outside of the care of the shepherd. There's, there's things that will threaten them. There's uncertainty. There's f- things to fear. But the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God will supply every need that we have. And to walk with God is to not only know God as Noah did, he would have known God, but is to experience his care, not only over you, but over all things. It's amazing, isn't it, to walk out in creation and to think that the Lord sustains everything you ever walked through the forest or you've ever walked in, in a snow-covered mountain in the middle of winter that the Lord sustains all things. And we're, we're, we're a small part of that, but God certainly sustains us as well. In him, what do, you still, what do you still yet need that you don't already have? What do you need that God has not already given you? Do we not have all things in the Lord? Of course, we have material needs and the Lord promises to meet those too, but our deepest spiritual needs are met and more in the hands of the shepherd. Noah lived in an incredibly wicked, perverse, corrupt world, but he didn't look outside of that. He didn't look outside of his relationship with God, outside of his walk with God, to satisfy needs that weren't being met in his walk with the Lord. He didn't have any unquenched thirst. He didn't have any appetites that were, that were unmet. He simply walked with God who supplied every need. So the simple life satisfies in God. Second, the simple life rests in God. Psalm 23, verse two says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. To embrace God, to embrace the shepherd is to embrace rest. Rest can be taken too far to slothfulness and laziness, but rest is a true gift from God. As a matter of fact, in, in the early days of Israel's history, as they were waiting for the promised land, um, they, the 12 spies were sent out into the promised land to check it out and to case the place and to come back and give a report. And the report that they received back was, was not accurate because they were afraid. The spies were afraid. Most of them were. They were afraid. And so they came back and gave, gave a wrong report, said, we can't go there. We cannot go in there. They will eat us alive. <clears throat> well, their punishment, their curse for those who, who were rejecting God's promise, their curse was that they were not permitted to enter the rest of the promised land. They were withheld in the wandering. They died off, and it was then the next sort of generation who inherited the promised land. But those who rejected God in Numbers 14, their curse was that they were not permitted to enter the rest of the promised land. 
The words no rest for the wicked can sometimes be understood as the, the, wicked, the conscience of the wicked is, is never at rest. They, they can't sleep at night because of you know, the thoughts that, that live with themselves. And while that may be true, in fact, I believe it is true, there is truly no rest for the wicked. This isn't a lyrics to a rock song. This is indeed a biblical notion taken directly from Isaiah 57 on which God pronounces a judgment against wickedness. And here's what he says in Isaiah 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. There's no peace, there's no rest here on earth for the wicked, for the unrighteous, for the unrepentant. And the same is true for eternity. There will be no eternal rest for the soul of the wicked and I'm telling you, true unrest is true torment. I was sick this past week or a week or so ago, and my sleeps were restless. That is truly torturous to be restless, to not be able to get a good night's sleep is truly torturous. But true unrest, unrest of the soul is far more. And this is what's promised to the unrighteous. Now, as sheep, as sons and daughters of God, life, even the simple life is rather difficult. It's rather exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting to even live the simple life. But here God promises us through the shepherd, green pastures, a place of great provision, a place of protection, a place of abundance. He promises us green pastures and still waters, a place of solace, a place of rest for your weary soul. St. Augustine in one of his ancient and famous works called Confessions, he says this, he reflects, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Would you find rest in the shepherd? Would you walk with the shepherd? Even today, would you find rest for your soul? Third, the simple life remains in God. Verse three says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Despite all the pressures to, to go astray, to simply follow God is to do what is right. <laughs> do you ever feel like you're the only one who's doing the right thing? Maybe in your place of work or in your neighborhood or in your family. Do you ever feel like you are the only one who's at least trying to do what's right, at least trying to keep it all together? But the simple life remains in God. The Lord kept Noah. The Lord preserved Noah and protected Noah. The Lord will keep you too. And he says, and it says in Psalm 23 that he does this. He keeps you for his name's sake, for his glory. You don't have to worry, but the Lord knows who's our, those who are his and he holds on to them. And may our, may our remaining in God not be a last resort. You know, like their last resort when you're sick, you, you go to the hospital because at least they'll give you there what you need. That's kind of the end of the road. That's the last resort but they feed you and they give you what you need. But my prayer is that us abiding in God wouldn't just be like going to the hospital. I think our tendency is to think that we can just check in once in a while. We can come to church, we can do our spiritual chores, we can make sure we're, we're right with, before the Lord and before other people and expect that we can, we can survive the week, we can survive the day before we come back totally depleted to recharge again. But that's not what Jesus says when, means when he says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't do anything. We're hopeless without the Lord. So remaining in the Lord is an active will of the heart and an active will of the, the mind, an act of the will. 
to consciously remain and abide in Christ who will satisfy all things, who gives us rest. So would we remind, remain in him? Fourth, the simple life stands out. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The valley of the shadow of death can also be understood as, as the darkest valley, the deepest, most dark valley. But here's the thing about sheep. Is sheep don't do anything special to stand out. And that's the point. What makes them sheep is that they depend completely on the shepherd. They don't command any sort of attention. They don't have any special skills, but they depend wholly on the shepherd. And so while we as sheep, we as sons and daughters of God, we've been set apart for holiness. We've been set apart for godliness. God's preserving his people. And we don't follow what the, what the world around us is doing. A few moments ago, uh, Doug, one of our elders, came up and read from the book of James and prayed through it. We've been doing that for several months. And uh, the book of James also, there's a passage in which it says that, that uh, we ought to live in the world, dwell in the world, but not be stained by the world. Not to live just like the world. And so against a, a perverse and corrupt backdrop, that was what was going on in Genesis chapter 5. Noah miraculously didn't compromise. The world around him was demonized completely and utterly corrupt, but it did not pervert him. He walked with God and God preserved him. He had a 600-year track record prior to, roughly prior to building the ark to, to uh, in a sense, prove that. But of course, it was the Lord who carried him through. But there's a great danger though, right? In, in feeling proud of our, of our abilities or of our accomplishments. There's a real danger in how we live. My fear is that we can be sooner and easy, more easily adapted by our surroundings ourselves than we can influence them. <laughs> we might make decisions that aren't directly sinful, but maybe they're not wise. We may not be sinning now in this thing or this area, but we might be. We might be soon. We might be flirting with sin. Sin is like a whirlpool. And I hope you never get caught in one. But the way whirlpools work is the closer you get to the center, to, to the destruction, the stronger the force gets. And so at the outside, you know, like Lot moved to, uh, he didn't move directly into Sodom. He moved sort of, he had a nice view of it. Well, before long, it tells us later in Genesis that he was living right in the city. Over time, he got sucked in. And sin does exactly that. We may not be sinning but we get pulled in. And so my prayer is that we would flee from sin, that we would do whatever it takes, identify where you're weak, identify where you're prone to slip up and flee from it. A good friend of mine who's a pastor says, you'll never find in sin what you went into sin to find. Sin will lead to destruction and it's easy to get there. But Jesus in Matthew chapter seven says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. We know this to be true. It's not easy, it's not hard to get sucked in. He says, those who enter it are, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So my friends, don't blend in. Don't blend in, don't flirt with sin lest you be dragged into destruction. Fifth, the simple life depends on God. Verse four of Psalm 23 first part of it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Rods and staffs, I'm not a shepherd, but rods and staffs are tools, they're implements used by shepherds to protect their flock and to correct their flock. And these are, this is the divine picture of, uh, of, of what God does to protect and correct his people. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, they comfort us. We have a desperate dependence on God. Not only a dependence, because I depend on a lot of things to keep me going, but we have a desperate dependence on God to preserve and to protect us. And so to walk with God is to necessarily depend on God. It doesn't work to walk with God, to be a Christian and to um, sacrifice your life to God, but also depend on other stuff. It doesn't work. It does not work. God demands our complete and full reliance on him. But let me ask you, what else was Noah, what what other choice did he have? (laughs) After all, didn't God make him a, a wild, unimaginable promise? We'll get into the account of the flood in, in the coming weeks. But, no, but God tells Noah, I'm gonna handpick you. I'm gonna protect you and your family. You're gonna build me a boat and it's gonna be such and such a dimensions. And it's gonna basically be a, a floating box. And I'm gonna use that. And by the way, I'm gonna load up two of every animal so that we can, you know, we can repopulate. This is beyond comprehension, beyond imagination. What would Noah, what, what other choice would he have had but to trust and depend wholly on God. My wife and I many times have been in the situation where you have nowhere else to turn. Maybe it's a financial need, or maybe it's been a health thing, or maybe it's a, an issue in the family. You, you're, you're completely out of options, and you go, Man, I got God, I have no choice but to depend on you. <laughs> and would we not wait till the end of ourselves to, to get to that place? But would we depend fully on God? Would we fear no evil because his rod and his staff comforts us? Would we depend on God not only to keep us from sin, but would we depend on God to keep us doing what is good? Sixth, the simple life delights in God. Verse five says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The metaphor switches here. I mentioned that David mixes his metaphors. And here we move from, away from the shepherd sheep metaphor to a host where God is a divine host. And, and, and the, the, the believer, the child is now coming to the, come into the house to dine. And so amidst the presence of enemies outside the walls of the house is, is, is fear, is um, terror. The, the guest in God's house delights in God. <laughs> I can tell you that delight is the exact antithesis, the exact opposite, the exact remedy to pride. Because as New Testament Christians, we have nothing to boast about, do we? Because Jesus paid it all. We've got nothing to boast about. If we, we have any boast, it's, it's, it's in Christ alone, right? So to delight in God is to boast in God. Noah couldn't boast of his own, not even of his own righteousness, Because even though it says that Noah was righteous, it said that God showed favor on Noah. God didn't go looking for someone who is righteous. Oh man, everyone else has turned away. Maybe there's someone who's left. No, it says that God showed favor. God found, or Noah found favor before God. That was a gift of grace. Noah couldn't even boast about that because he had to receive that from the Father to be able to walk with God, to be able to be righteous, to be able to be blameless. It says in um, a small book written by 
a pastor who's been really influential to me named John Piper. He writes a little book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight, which I would commend to you uh, some other time. And he writes this, Christianity combats pride because it puts man in the category of an empty vessel under the fountain of God. Philanthropists can boast. Welfare recipients can't. The primary experience of the Christian is one of helplessness and desperation and longing. You know we're empty vessels. We're only full because we're in the fountain of God. We don't need to work to pay it off. We just need to delight in God. And when we delight, we experience the blessing that God offers to us at his table. Life of submission and worship to God isn't a duty. It isn't a heavy burden to bear. It is a delight to serve the Lord. Again, it isn't easy, but it's a delight. Second to last, point number seven, the simple life lives by faith. Verse six of Psalm 23 says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. There's a, there's a certain mirage to, to sin and unrighteousness, isn't there? If you're advanced in years, you'll, you can maybe think back to your younger years. If you're younger in years, you can, you can imagine even already in this world we live in, all of, the, all of the vanity that goes on, all of the ways in which sin promises things that aren't really real. It is a mirage. But when we live by faith, we look away from the mirage of what is to be gained by sin or what's, what's enticing about sin, and we look beyond that, and we look into the righteousness of God. Noah lived by faith. It tells us that very plainly. He lived by faith, and he walked with God. He took God, he took God at his word. He maybe had questions, but we can't read about that. He maybe had doubts, but he, had, he took God, quite simply, at his word. It says in Hebrews eleven seven once again, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning these events. He responded, how? By obedience. Obedience requires faith. He responded in obedience. Even though it wouldn't have made any sense, it was a place where rain was, was scarce. It had certainly never flooded before, certainly not a global flood. It didn't make a lot of sense. He, he no doubt would have had questions, but the Lord would have helped his unbelief. Noah lived by faith. There's a man who comes to Jesus with a son in the New Testament and, and Jesus heals his son. And, the, man, and the, the, the father replies, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm a pastor in a church. I, I work with youth all the time and I have the privilege of teaching youth all the time. But there are times where I doubt. There are times where my faith is weak and we can come to the Lord and ask, Lord, help my unbelief. So my prayer is that we would live by faith as it says in Galatians, that we would live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Even though we live in the flesh, we live in the physical world, we live by faith in God and his promises. Lastly, the simple life hopes in God. Psalm 23 ends with these words, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our ultimate hope, isn't it? Our future hope in God is a life beyond now, beyond the here and now. We can suffer, we can endure the trials that are sure to come because we have hope, not in this world only, not in the things only that we can see and feel and, and buy, but we have hope in something much greater, things of eternal value, 2 Corinthians 4. says, let us not behold the things that we can see, but the things that we can see because the things we can see will fade away. They're a mirage. They're transient, but the things that we cannot see are eternal. 
let us behold that. We can be confident God has a pretty good track record in his word. We can be confident that God is true to his word, that God's promises are true. And I hope if you've been walking with the Lord for any number of, t- any number of years or any number of days or months, that you too can testify to God's faithfulness, to God's goodness, that you have good reason to have hope and to have faith in God. We don't have a blind faith. We have a very, very reasonable faith. In the world of, of all the options out there, the Christian faith happens to work very, very well. It's backed by an incredible amount of data and science, (laughs) but it's more than that. It's not only that. We don't have a faith that's built on science. We have a faith that's built on God. But even if you were to, from a very critical perspective, analyze the faith, it works. It makes sense. It's reasonable. It's rational, but it is exactly that. It is faith. But my hope for you is that your, your faith and your hope would be in God, wouldn't be in anything else but that that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It says in Hebrews 11 again, that in this reverent fear, after, he was, after Noah was warned of these things, it says that he built, he did exactly what God said, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's something, there's something beyond this life. We can, be, we can become recipients of God's promises. We become heirs of his righteousness that comes only by faith. But we have to behold beyond what's here and what's now. So I'd like to consider what, what is your hope? What is your hope in this life? I hope that your hope is that we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the songs we sang says that death will be the door to life. Death isn't the end. Death is, is the doorway to true, eternal, everlasting life for God's people. So in living the simple life, would you hope in God? Finally, as a way to conclude, I, I wanna talk about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus invites us to a simple life. Right from the get-go, he invited his disciples to a simple life. He said, drop your nets, follow me. You don't have time for questions, we'll get to that, but follow me. And they did that. It was a simplicity to the faith of the disciples to just drop what they were doing and follow God. And Jesus invites you and I to the same simple life. Again, it's not easy but it's simple. He wants to be your shepherd. He wants to have you dine in his home, in the presence of your enemies. Maybe you've fallen. Maybe you've stumbled. God has grace sufficient for you to get back up. Maybe maybe you're tired. Maybe you're completely depleted physically, spiritually, emotionally. Come have a rest by the stream. May you be filled in the green pastures. Give your weary soul a drink in still waters. Maybe you've stumbled into sin and you feel like you can't get get back up. You can, you can repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to the Lord, walk with him. Maybe you've wandered away, you've drifted. Well, the Bible says that the great shepherd is prone to leave the 99 to go seek out the one. God will come find you. He'll bring you back if you walk with him. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you have doubt. Maybe you have fear. Maybe you have anxiety. Any number of those things or maybe all of those things. Maybe you, if you're like me, you feel like you just can't get your act together. That's okay. It's allowed. (laughs) You don't have to. Just trust in the Lord. Live the simple life. Walk with him. Cast your burdens on him. He offers to take your, your heavy load.
and in exchange give you peace, give you a yoke, which is not burdensome. It's easy to, easy to bear. May you cast your burdens on him because he cares for you. Let me pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the simple life that your word speaks of. Thank you that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to carry ourselves. We don't have to be the fittest, be the smartest, be the fastest. Lord, we have to be sheep. We have to come, delight, dwell, dine, rest in your presence. Thank you that you've done it all. Lord, you don't require anything of us that you haven't already done in us already but you require our obedience. So Lord, I pray that even in the midst of a difficult life, in a difficult uh, world, Father, that we would be obedient, that we would be like sheep who are obedient. Father, who know the benefit, who know the joy and the, uh, the, the, uh, the goodness of walking with you. So Lord, give us strength to do that. Even today, I pray, amen.